morning. I'm trying something different today, so I'm using my MacBook to uh, run from. So I heard Aaron say that, was, that you should agree with what the speaker says. So it was Leeds 4, Middlesbrough nil yesterday. Nottingham Forest couldn't manage a goal with 32 shots. So Leeds are better than Nottingham Forest. Have a moment. Have a moment. I know there's some more here who would agree with me. So... Um, Great, we have got some visuals for us. Here's one at the back as well. He's a happy man this morning. We've got some visuals. I want to continue on the series of a building a house. I think I'm finishing the series today, isn't it? That's right. So uh, we've been looking at the theme of building the house, and today's topic is around how the word of God builds the house. We skip on to the next one. I want to just give us... Um, a little passage of scripture here to look at. The book of Hebrews is a really useful book. You can find it in the New Testament, but it acts as a very practical and theological bridge between what went on in the Old Testament and what has gone on through the work of Jesus and the New Testament. It really helps us to understand uh, some of what they did in the Old Testament and sort of stuff. And I want to read Hebrews chapter 3 just to press home um, this concept of building God's house, and I'll de develop that a little bit as we go. Hebrews 3 verse 3 says this, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is a builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now, if you, if you read that and you don't take much notice, you might think, well, house is the temple in the Old Testament because that's what it was. Uh, some of the Psalms speak very clearly and strongly. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are planted in Jerusalem. And the, the house of God in the Old Testament is synonymous with the temple. And here it says that Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now, if you know your Bible timeline, you will understand that the temple was built hundreds of years after Moses was on earth. So that causes us a problem in understanding temple as a building or a house and what in fact the writer is saying here is it's not a house as a building but it is a household some of us have been exploring this word greek word oikos in the connect groups and this is exactly the word that is used there this is talking of the household of god and we don't often use the word house to mean family or household anymore but there's three images i've just put up to try and help us get a hold of this. First is a house of Fraser. That is for family-run business you can find in the high street. Notice what I said, a family-run business. It's of people, the house. The house of Windsor, that's the royal family. And lastly, I don't know if you were in a, a schoolhouse system. Were any of you in a schoolhouse system? Yeah, I was in, I was in Romsey House. I was in... Hampshire, and uh, we had the same colours. I think there's always four colours, aren't there? But a house system in the school is a collection of people all striving to live together and be better and do sports together against the other houses. So let's just understand that the word house means household, particularly when we look at it in the New Testament. 
we can move on as well. And uh, we've already looked at this verse, so I'm not going to read it. Can I have the next one, please? But what I have got there is uh, an image that I'm going to use just as a structure for taking us through the next um, 20 minutes or so. This is a really wide-ranging talk. And at the end of it, I want us to be able to respond to God. Whatever God is asking us to do to contribute to building his household, I'd love us to have an opportunity to respond to that. So what we've got there is a picture. And we've got a picture of a corner of a building, and it's got a cross in the corner. Now, you won't find buildings with a cross-shaped brick in the corner, so it is a, a stylized corner piece. And I'll come on to explain what that is. But these verses in Ephesians that were read before, so we won't read it again, tell us that we are members of God's household. And I'm going to use this as a structure, that picture as a structure, to talk about how God's word builds God's household. So we can move on to the next one. This is where we're going. Okay, we're going to take each one of these in turn. We're going to look at Jesus as the cornerstone. We're going to look at the fact that some in the church are called to be teachers And then there's something for everyone here. All are required to train themselves. All are obliged to teach one another. All are urged to prophesy. And all are sent to preach the gospel. This is various forms that God's word takes in his church. And we're going to look at those individually. And then we're going to be a chance to respond to how we can take our place and part in building God's household. What I'm going to do, I'm going to make these um, images available on the, uh, what's it called, the podcast site. So these will go up. But take notes as we go. Okay, let's move through this because we're, we're going to take each one of these as um, in turn. So first of all, what I want to say is there is one cornerstone, and that is Jesus Christ. We read there that you are members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as chief cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone is not a cross shaped stone. It is a regular shaped stone, but it is the most regular shaped stone, and a stonemason and an architect would take a very long time in choosing the cornerstone, because a cornerstone is the first stone that is to be laid in the construction of a building. So it needs to be perfectly square. If it's not perfectly square and it's one degree off 90 degrees, by the time you've gone 100 meters that way to build a building, you're probably one, two, three meters off course. Those of you who are good at trigonometry could tell me how far you'd be off course. So Jesus is described as the chief cornerstone. And what that means is he is a permanent reference point for us living our lives and for the church as a whole. He is the person we relate to, the person we take direction from, and he provides a datum point for all other stones. So we lay our lives in accordance with the pattern that Jesus Christ set down. And there is no need to lay another foundation. Let me just clarify this, because it says there in Ephesians chapter 2 that the household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So you could think, well, the foundations are apostles and prophets. So I've got a different understanding of that. I actually believe that the foundation of the apostles and prophets is the foundation that the apostles and prophets have laid. And that is Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look at the last verse I've put up there, it says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11, this is Paul speaking, probably one of the greatest apostles and master builders of the church, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. So if you know people uh, leading churches, they shouldn't be the foundation, Christ should be the foundation. 
And if you come and talk to me, I'm a cornerstone because he is a permanent marker. And we need to guard this carefully because um, in 1 Peter, the cornerstone is described as chosen and precious. Yet, I don't know, I, I sometimes look around with fear uh, or listen with fear and, and disconcern that um, some sermons I hear, some teaching, some preaching hardly make reference to Jesus. And that disturbs me because there must be constant reference to the cornerstone by the leaders of the church. The apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the evangelists, whoever, build on Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the ultimate example of all of those. He is the chief apostle. He is the greatest prophet who ever lived. He is the most wonderful teacher that ever lived. And he is the greatest evangelist. And the, the, the foundation which is laid is really just Jesus Christ. We don't need to lay anything else. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And the gospel writers describe Jesus in this way. He was a man full of grace and truth. That is the essence of what we are looking to build. That is the essence of God's word. And that's how we build God's household together. So there is only one cornerstone, and that is Jesus Christ. Let's move on. So we've got one cornerstone, but also the Bible teaches us that uh, there are some who are called to be teachers. And uh, unfortunately, it's got one of the most sobering verses about this, which we've got there in James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. I wish that wasn't there. But it is there because it's a really important role of preaching and teaching from front because we are influencing people's lives. And I know that I will have to give an account for what I say today, what I will say at home, what I will say during the week, whenever I get up to speak and anybody gets up to speak. If you consider yourself to be a teacher, you will have to give account for why you said what you said. And that's really important. One of the things I want to draw out on this is in Ephesians chapter 4, and that's at the bottom there. Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. To me, teachers should be accountable. They've got to be part of a team. Um, that's why we see the, the model of a, a, a church leadership there explained for us in Ephesians. It's multifaceted, it's multi-skilled. People are strong in some areas and weak in others. But it is Christ who has given these people to the church so that the church might be built up. I sometimes hear as well that um, teachers always give a really great sermon. And it's, it's sometimes described as being a fantastic meal. Weren't we fed this morning? Now, I... I I'm a bit hesitant to use that term because if I feed you this morning or I invited you for Sunday lunch around my house and then sent you off for the rest of a week and you had never learnt to cook, what are you going to do in a week? Starve. So a role of a teacher is not only to serve a meal, in other words, some meat of God's word, what does it mean? But I'm here, I'm going to give you some ingredients and I'm going to give you some recipes. And that's really, really important that teachers are able to do that. It's, it's along with that old proverb, isn't it, that if you, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. So the role of teachers is there, is to equip God's people for works of service. Teachers in the church are for the equipping of the church. I also want to just pass out a warning here. You can go and find teaching on any subject you want at a click of a button. 
And uh, the Bible does talk about false teachers in 1 Timothy 1. I'm not going to dwell on this, but I do want to flag it up. Because Paul writes to Timothy as a young leader, and he, he, he cites some hallmarks of false teachers. And it's quite easy to see those nowadays. He talks of them as being mysterious and having some special revelation. And I'm always guarded when someone says to me, oh, I've got this really special revelation from God. I, I, he's shown me something that he's shown nobody else. Really? I thought God was a God of revelation. He is light. He is self-revealing. Or they, they come up with some great complex, convoluted theory about Old Testament fulfillment in New Testament, and it's so tenuous and it's so complex you just can't get your head around it. Paul warns us that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The hallmark of a good, true teacher is you go away loving Jesus. You don't go away with more knowledge and go, wow, doesn't that bloke know so much? I'll never be like him. He, he must have a special relationship with God. The marks of a false teacher is also mentioned in 1 Timothy 1 as being uh, speculative and arrogant. Arrogant, overconfident, you can read that sometimes as well. So I would just say, be careful what you listen to. Be really careful what you listen to. It, it happened in Corinth. Some says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I've got my favorites. Don't have favorites other than Jesus Christ. He is our cornerstone, and we build our life on him. So we have one cornerstone. We have some who are called to be teachers. Let me just, before I launch into the next section, um, comment on that verse in Ephesians. So it says that Christ gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I believe those are roles that we all play to some degree, and I'll go on to explain this in a moment. But one way of understanding it is, is this. It's degrees of gift and ability. So um, if I showed you a five-pound note, you know I've got a five-pound note, but I tell you what, I'm not a millionaire. I'll just... Take my word for it, I'm not a millionaire. <laughs> but if you met a millionaire, he would be able to show you a five-pound note. So not everyone who has a five-pound note is a millionaire, but millionaires have five-pound notes. So God has given gifted people with high levels of gift to be in prophecy, to be prophets in the church, in teaching to be teachers in the church, in evangelism to be evangelists in the church, and they equip us for works of service. But we have to perform all of those things in order to grow the church. And we're going to see that in a moment. Right, let's move on. Okay, so we're in, we're in the realm now where it's speaking to everybody. We spoke to everyone when we said Jesus is the only cornerstone. I spoke to some when I said some are called to be teachers and we want to develop that gift within the church, definitely. This is for all of us. Hebrews 5 verse 14 says this, the mature by constant use, and it's talking about God's word, that's a context, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So the first responsibility for us with God's word is to constantly use it to train ourselves. I can equip you but I can't make choices for you. I can encourage you, but I can't tell you what to think and meditate on and fill your life with in the week. Now, the other week, I spoke about the Word of God, and I gave us some little tips, and I'm just going to test how, 
how well those have gone down, whether we actually remember what was said. So I said, in Scripture, in the Bible, you often see commands, promises, and facts. And we treat it. When we see a command, what do we do? Obey it. When we see a promise, claim it. When we see a fact, we believe it. And as we constantly do that with the word of God in our lives, we train ourselves. And we train ourselves to distinguish between good and between evil. So the more we fill our life with truth, the easier and and, um, more simple it will be to make good choices in our lives. So one example, let's go back to money again. If you work in a bank, you would be used to handling five-pound notes. It's you for five-pound notes. Somebody who works in a bank handles five-pound notes so regularly that over a course of a year or two, they can actually tell if somebody slips a forgery in there just by the feel of it, the sound of it. Did they study what a forgery was like? No. They handled the genuine article day in, day out. And that's a way we build God's word into our lives. If we handle the genuine article of God's word in our lives, build it in our lives, then it's going to be obvious when a dud comes along, when the enemy seeks to distract us. Um, how does he do that? He, te- he, he tries to do it through temptation, through accusation and deception. And our guard against all of these is truth. God's word is true. Fill our lives with truth. We've got it there in Philippians chapter 4. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is a great piece of advice. Now, pastorally, over the years, when Sarah and I have helped people who are struggling in a particular area, this is a question we will ask them. Is that true? So you may come to us and you say, I feel absolutely worthless. Is it true that you are worthless? Well, what do we know is true? Well, we know the Bible is true. So what does the Bible say about you? And we get that person to discover what God says about them. I am worthy. I am precious. I am chosen. And over the course of time, as we choose to think on those very things, the feelings of unworthiness disappear. It doesn't happen overnight because strongholds of unworthiness build up in the mind over years through circumstance of what has happened. But over time, those strongholds can be torn down as they are replaced with the word of God. Here's a little snippet there. If what we think does not reflect the truth, then what we feel does not reflect reality. Think about that for a moment. Feel unworthy. Well, is that based on truth? No, it's not based on truth. So you're not unworthy. You're worthy. And that's how we fill our lives and we train ourselves with God's word. Just looking at the time. Let's move on. Secondly, not only are we called to, to um, build ourselves and train ourselves, we are obliged to teach one another. So I said to you, there are some who are going to be teachers in the church, but everybody has a role and responsibility to teach others. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. So it's not a top-down teaching. This is a peer-to-peer teaching. 
And this is really where um, those discipleship cards, the mentoring system we're, we're putting in place is really valuable. And, and the dynamics of this are really quite simple. Um, there's a description in 1 John chapter 2, which the, the writer writes to the church there, and he writes to people he classifies in three broad, broad groups, children, young men, and fathers. And it applies equally to the, the other gender as well. It's just a way of expressing this. And he says, you, children, you know your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. You know when you become a Christian, it's great, isn't it? Because you get a relationship with God as Father and you know your sins are forgiven. And that's your starting point for growth. And then he speaks to the young men. He says, well, you've got all of the above, plus you've overcome the evil one. You're strong, and the word of God lives in you. Notice that the word of God lives in you. It's part of maturing, is that the word of God lives in us. We're really fortunate we've got the Bible. Those scripture were written as letters to churches who didn't have a Bible. The word of God was an oral tradition that was being passed around. And so they, they had to get it in them because they didn't have any written reference point. This is so precious. I'm going to make a bid for, for hard copy paper Bibles to come back. I'm going off on one a bit here. I've got a Bible app and I love it. But my concern is this. It's another app. It's a commodity. It sits alongside Angry Birds. I was gutted when my iPhone was updated in software a year or two ago and it lost the ability to play Angry Birds, but it did. That's another story. But please, please... I don't know how you can do it. Can you elevate a Bible app to sit above all other apps? Because it should. Don't let it get lost in the midst of all the other lifestyle apps you've got. This is not a lifestyle manual. This is your life. This is your life. This is God speaking into your life. It cannot be relegated to just another app. It's useful as an app. And I do a lot of searching. I've, uh, I've got a concordance on there which looks up Greek words and all this. But it has to take greater prominence. Don't know how I got onto that. Fathers have all of the above and they know God intimately. So we're putting in place within the mentoring system and within connect groups also. I'd encourage you to be part of a connect group because you will get a, a whole range of experience and maturity in there. And uh, an older person who is more experienced in faith can come as alongside a younger person. Also say to uh, connect group leaders... We've got some fabulous notes that are being produced. I can say that. I'm not producing them. I know who is, and they are wonderful. Please, please use those notes. Why? Because that's a way you can teach and admonish one another to grow in their faith. What does it mean to admonish? It means to lovingly challenge and correct. Do you know what that sounds like when you say that? Have you thought of the consequences if you carry that through? And we do it with love. We do it with grace. We do it with gentleness so we're required to train ourselves we're obliged to teach one another let's move on all are urged to prophesy prophecy is where you sense God is saying something to you but he wants you to pass on to somebody else in its simplest terms 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1 says this, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, 
and comfort. Be eager to prophesy. So I've summarized it there. Prophecy will build up, it will stir up, or it will cheer up. It will not condemn, it will not give overt guidance. You're going to marry that person next year? Whoa, hold on, this is a bit heavy. Especially as I'm already married. <laughs> I've, heard some, I've heard some weird and wacky prophecy, and it puts me off. But I'm told to be eager to prophesy. We've got to regain confidence in prophecy and in God speaking to us and allow ourselves to make little mistakes because we know in part and we prophesy in part. And when we speak to somebody and say, I think God might be saying that to you, we do it with humility. I want you just to take it and just judge it for yourself. I'm not being heavy about it. I'm not putting it on you. Let me tell you a, a story, a really good story here. A few weeks ago when I was speaking, I told you the story of Amber. Now, Amber was a, um, a young lady we took into our home. She'd lived on the streets. She was from a broken home. She was getting into all sorts of trouble. And she came and lived with us for six months in our, in our house, in our front room, which had a sofa bed. Uh, it became her bedroom. And um, she got involved with us, and we, we met as a church Regularly uh, on a Sunday, but mostly we met in homes, and one of the groups was around our house. So Amber took part in, in those groups. And after a few months of being in those groups, she was, she'd heard the message of Jesus. She heard that God's loved her, and she didn't understand love because she'd never experienced it in the past. And at the end of one of those meetings, we'd, we'd prayed, we'd worshipped, we'd, we'd explored God's word together. I, ha I had a sense that God wanted me to say something to Amber. And I almost bottled it. And the reason I almost bottled it is because I thought I was being too clever and playing with words. And you'll let me tell you the story. So this is what I said to Amber. I said, Amber, there was, um, there was a man in the Bible who was called Simon. And he met, and he met Jesus. And when Jesus met him, he turned his life around so much that he gave him a new name, Peter. And he, he, he followed Jesus wholeheartedly, became a leader in the church. Amber, I sense that God, and I don't know what this means, wants to give you a new name, and that new name is Jade. And at this point, I'm thinking, oh, you're going off on one, Rich. Could be, that's just clever word association. They're two colors. And then it got even more. God, sometimes as you speak, God gives you new stuff. And I said, Amber, Amber is like on a traffic light, and you're hesitant. But Jade is green, and God wants you to go for it. He wants you to put your faith in him, and your life will be changed for the good. Does that mean anything to you? <laughs> and she said, every summer holidays, me and my cousin used to take on personas and different names because we wanted to escape our dreadful home situation. And for six weeks every summer, I called myself Jade. I'm crying now because it was, it was so powerful and poignant. God spoke to her in that moment. Um, let's be open to God speaking. Let's be, that would have done no harm, that word, if it hadn't been right. That's a do no harm principle. But as it was, God knew her life inside out. A bit like the woman at the well who met Jesus last week, John chapter 4. He told me everything I ever did. That's a good thing because God knows you. God loves you. 
God knows his purpose he has for you. Just a little point on this. I know I've got to move on. With prophecy, it's three stages, really. It's revelation, interpretation, and application. God shows you something or gives you a word or gives you an image or gives you a scripture. That's for revelation. The interpretation and the application, so what does it mean and what should I do, let's not worry about at this stage. Let's just start stepping out. God has said that I, I think God's given me a picture that might be relevant to you. Here's what it is. And sometimes God will not give you an interpretation and an application, but the person receiving it knows exactly what it's about. So let's be open to prophecy. Do not quench your spirit. Do not treat prophecy with contempt, but test them. Hold on to what is good. So all are urged to prophesy. Lastly, we're drawing this to a close. All are sent to preach the gospel. This is wonderful. Most of us, if not all of us, are here today because somebody told you about Jesus. True? True. There may be the odd exception where nobody did and you had a dream, and I love that sort of stuff, where they just see Jesus in a dream. But most of us are here today because we had somebody who loved us and cared for us enough to tell us about Jesus. Mark 16, verse 15 says this, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. So let me just wind back a minute. I said not all are evangelists, but we are all to evangelize. Not all are prophets, but we're all to prophesy. Not all are teachers, but we're all to teach and admonish one another. Not all are pastors, but you are to care for one another and build each other up in love. I don't like it when I hear people say, Christians say, oh, I'm not sharing my faith with anybody because we've got other people better who can do that better in the church. That's not an option. We came to Christ freely, we have received freely, we must give. Some people find it easier than others, but we are all called and sent to preach the gospel. When Jesus says come, the next thing he says is go. Come to me and go and preach the gospel. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Let me just take some of the, the sting out of sharing our faith. Sometimes we try and go too far. A witness, it's using legal language here, a witness is somebody who stands up in a court of law and says, this is what I've seen, this is what I've heard. And then they're asked questions about it. Alongside the witness, you have a lawyer or an advocate who takes what the witness has said and applies it with great force and great precision to the hearers. Guess who the advocate is? The Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's better that I go to the Father because when I go, I will send another one to come in my place and he will be with you and he will convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness. Our job is not to convict and convince that is the job of the Holy Spirit. And that is tremendously releasing because when I share my faith with people, I can simply say, I found Jesus. I'm struggling in life, but I pray and I know God is alongside me. And I don't have to get into an argument about trying to convince them to believe because that is the role of the Holy Spirit. And the moment we put ourselves in that role, we take on their argument and fight, which they should be directing towards God and he can convince and he can love and he can convict. So all are sent. How can they call on the one 
they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching? How can they preach unless they are sent? We are all sent. We are all sent to preach the gospel. Right, let's sum this up. We've just got a last slide where we're going to recap all six and uh, draw this to a close. And I want us to, this morning, consider how we might respond to what has been said. First of all, I want to speak to those who have not yet put their trust in Jesus Christ. And you've heard there is a wonderful, sure foundation on which to build your life, and his name is Jesus. He is a cornerstone, he is true, he is permanent, and he is there for you. And I'd love you to be able to respond to that. So I'm just going to lead us in a prayer. And if you want to respond to say, I want to build my life on Jesus, I've never done that before, but today I trust him, I'd love you to pray that with me in your heart. Can we all close our eyes as we do this? Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he has made it possible to have a relationship with you. We are sorry for building our lives in our own way, walking away from you, for sinning, for causing harm and hurt to others and to ourselves. We thank you that Jesus has paid the penalty and the price for our sin, and we are free. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come into our lives now, to fill us. We commit ourselves to building our life on Jesus Christ with him as a permanent saviour and friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's open our eyes. If you prayed that, just come and talk to me at the end. I'd love to talk to you some more. Love also, um, if you sense you are called to be a teacher and you've heard some caveats in there today as well, Come and talk to Aaron or Sarah or myself and we'll, we'll look at how within the mentoring system uh, we can facilitate that because that's really good um, also. And then let's look at those other four and let's be honest. Do an audit of your life. All are required to train ourselves. All are obliged to teach one another. All are urged to prophesy. All are sent to preach the gospel. Which areas is God highlighting to you Throw yourself in. This is how the church, the household of God, is built by his word. Just let the Holy Spirit say to you, I need you to get stuck in in this way. I need you to, to preach. I need you to share your faith. I need you to take seriously prophecy because it breaks open situations. I need you to love and teach one another. I need you to take responsibility for your own life. Hopefully you've got someone in mind and I'm just going to pray for us. Just keep that aspect in your heart. Jesus, we've heard your word this morning. We take it on board that you love us so much and you have a plan and purpose for us to play in this household of faith in this church. We thank you that we are privileged to be building the church together with you through your word. And whatever you have highlighted in us today, we commit ourselves to wholeheartedly preaching, prophesying, teaching, training. Thank you for the privilege of that. Thank you for the privilege. Holy Spirit, enable us, equip us, stretch us. Holy Spirit, fill us with zeal. As Jesus was filled with great passion 
and commitment when he said, zeal for my father's household has consumed me. Consume us, Lord, with zeal. In Jesus' name, amen.